Romans chapter 12, Romans 12. Tony DeMillo has a book called The Song of the Bird, and in this book, he tells this fascinating fable. And it's about a man, he finds an eagle's egg, and he decides, I'm going to put this with my chickens on the farm. And so he does. He actually takes that egg, and he puts that in there with the hens, and, and that egg eventually hatches. And, and so this eagle does everything that chickens do, okay? So the eagle learns to scratch at the ground and get bugs and worms and to eat them and just keep driving your beak in there. He keeps learning how to do that. Um, you know how like chickens, they can't really fly. They got to flap around, a lot of action, not a lot of movement and motion as far as upward ascendancy. So uh, that's what the eagle does. He makes a big mess of things, flying around, flapping around. That's how he lives. He clucks around, cackles around, just like the chickens. Well, this eagle spends his whole life living like this, just like this chicken. And, and uh, one time he's, he's out there uh, picking out bugs and he sees this magnificent bird, wings fully extended, just soaring almost effortlessly in the sky. And, and he goes, hey, what, what in the world is that? What kind of bird is that? Well, his fellow chicken said, well, well, that's an eagle. That's the grandest of all the birds. But we're chickens. We're of the earth. He's an eagle. He's of the sky. He soars. And the eagle lived the rest of his life like a chicken because that's what he thought he was. That's a pretty profound fable. You let that start to sink in. And it's really the story of so many Christians. God has designed us, saved us, empowered us so that we'll soar, but the problem is we live on the earth and we actually never understand who we really are. And until you grow to really understand Romans 12, 1 through 3, chances are you're an eagle acting like a chicken. You're just grinding out life on the here and now and on the earth. And I've had numerous people tell me after first service, I wish I would have heard this a long time ago. One gal flat out said, life would be very different for me if I had known this. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, tells us what is absolutely essential for it to be well with our soul. You're going to want to put a mark by this because this is going to free you. Let's look at the verse. He says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of of faith. What is essential for it to be well with your soul? Well, the first thing you need to know is you have to have a healthy view of self. Because it's this way, friends. How you view yourself shapes how you live your life. How you view yourself shapes how you live your life. And so Paul says, for through the grace given to me, he says, all of my life is grace. And it's, it's not only speaking from apostolic authority as one who has been set apart by God to actually write Holy Scripture where the Spirit of God moves certain men who had seen the resurrected Lord to actually write out Scripture, but it's almost as if he's giving us a hint to his own life. Through, through the grace given to me, to not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. It's as if Paul is 
giving us a look inside and saying, you know what, I lived a lot of the years of my life thinking I was high and mighty. Pride, arrogance, they shape my identity. But Paul has come to understand the gospel. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he sees that life is meant to be a worship experience unto God and that we're not to be conformed to this world, but we're literally to give our lives as a sacrifice in response to the loveliness of Christ and of God. But he says, notice how many times did you find in verse 3 that he used the word think? Well, in your English translations, it, it comes across like, well, three different times he says think, think, think. But even where he says sound judgment, they are all four of those are all from the same Greek, Greek word. And it has the idea not just of your mental state, but it has the idea of your mindset, your attitude. Because what goes on up here affects everything about your life. And so he says, you need to have sober judgment. You don't want to have, be under the influence of something that is going to wreck your perception of what reality really is. And so he says, to not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. And this is really a human tendency. And that is to kind of escalate ourselves above others. There's something about our fallenness that always seeks to separate ourselves from others where we look better, right? We could call it arrogance, but we've got very sophisticated ways of, of showing everybody how awesome we are, don't we? They become, as an adult, these become highly polished, but of course we recognize them in others because we see them in ourselves and we hate it, right? But you know the person, uh, they think that they're God's gift to the world and they have a way of like doing, showing that. For instance, you tell a story and they're like, oh, well, that's nothing. Let me tell you what I did or what happened to me, right? Don't you just love people like that? Oh, you're like, holy. And they, and they have a way of like showing they're smarter. They got more degrees. They've made more money. They got more accolades. They've accomplished more things. And we have subtle ways of just putting that out there. And it's, and it's, we try to affirm ourselves when we do that, but it's also meant to send a message to others. We got it together. We're sophisticated at it. But it's like I read one guy said, cemeteries are full of indispensable people. We think the world, my world, needs me. And we have a ways of, of thinking that way. Now, for the Jewish people, they probably thought, you know, the Gentiles, we got a heritage. They don't. The Gentiles, they might have been prideful because like, well, we just read and we see. Looks like God's hardened your heart. We've, we, we have reasons to be prideful and proud. And pride is manifested in a lot of different ways. Let me give you some. This might hit really close to home. By the way, if you came for a comfortable message, you're on the wrong Sunday. Judgmental attitudes. You're always sizing people up and tearing them down in your mind. In fact, it is amazing how quickly you can do that. Judging, passing judgment. They're not as pretty as I am, not as smart. What a mess. What a wretched excuse for being a human. And, and we do this, and we size people up, and what happens up here then gets reflected in how we treat people. Now, we may not say a lot of the evil, arrogant stuff that's going on through our head, but we have a way of communicating that. Rolling our eyes, not giving people the time of the day. We're looking for the people that are important and kind of assuage our sense of well-being. Or let me give you another one. You're just impatient with others. 
You gotta love people like this. They, they think that they are high and mighty and they're super intelligent. And they go and they give about as fast as they can. They say a bunch of things. Blah, 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 blah. And you're like trying to process and put it together and they're like, oh, okay, I'll see what I'm working with here. Let me slow down and like spell it out for you. Then they treat you like you're in first grade, right? You know what that's all meant to do? It's meant to communicate what they really think of you and what they think of themselves. You know, and our pride, it actually... It feeds our flesh. We love to find identity, meaning, purpose, and functionality apart from God, and pride is like adrenaline to that system, and it fuels it, when in reality, we're made in the image of God, and our true identity is actually being eternally united with Christ. It comes by faith, but pride is for the world, and it appeals to our flesh, and if you are a Christian, God is committed to breaking pride in your life. God is absolutely committed to your holiness, that you enjoy God, know God, love God, and live for Him, so committed that He is determined to break pride in your life. And there are two ways He does that, the easy way and the hard way. You might want to take a few notes. The easy way is through the transforming of your mind, like He speaks about in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It is why the scripture is so critically important in your daily diet. It's why Jesus says man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God's word continually shows you who God is and who you are, and it leads us to the fact that, whoa, so I'm not as high as mighty as I thought. In fact, that's why I need a savior. And God is God, and he's the one that's great. And it fosters humility in your life, and it comes through the reading and the transforming work of the word. It's why you want to be in a church that preaches the word and not just a bunch of cute stories that keeps you entertained and never having you interface with the things that are really important. But there's the, that's the easy way. The hard way, though, is trials. And God will bring trials to your life to break you down if you're allowing pride to run rampant. And, and I want you to know from firsthand experience, it is painful and it is hard. And I wish I would have listened a little better at different stages in my life. And that maybe explains what's going on right now in your heart. You're like, what in the world just hit me? What is going on? God may very well be addressing that pride issue. Why? He's committed to your holiness. He wants you to know his goodness. He wants you to know the joy of being fully given over to him. You know, there's the inflated view of yourself, but there is a converse to that. Do you see what the text says? He doesn't want you to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. And this isn't a suggestion. It's actually a command. You are commanded to think rightly about yourself. That means not to have an inflated view, but also to not have a deflated view. To not think too little of yourself. Do you know that we are called to be servants of God? Not doormats, not worms. Now, I want you to know something. I have a great deal of respect for Puritans and Puritan theology. But on this point, I think they took it in extreme, when they take the doctrine of total depravity and they are looking to drive someone to a place where they think they are just nothing but an existence, it's almost as if it's holy for you to be run over the, like the world, like a roller, just back and forth and literally crushing you. And I want you to know that I, I, I appreciate the heart 
of valuing salvation and, and remaining humble before God. But God is very clear we're to think rightly about ourselves. I'll tell you why I think that that thinking that you're a total worm and a utter wretch always is wrong. Because I believe the book of Romans. I've got adoption papers. God has told me that by virtue of me believing in Christ, I have been rescued from the domain of darkness and sin, and he literally has made me a child of God. I'm a child of the king. He wants me to live in light of that reality. That's going to be very different than a doormat existence. He wants me to command, what is it? To think rightly, to have sound judgment about who I really am. And so just like you got folks running around with the inflated view of themselves, you got plenty of folks that are the deflated view, right? Oh, I'm terrible. I'm the worst thing that ever happened. I'm no good. Nobody wants me. Nobody likes me. I don't want to, I'm going nowhere in my life. I am a victim. And you see this victim mentality. And, you, and these people are like in the extra grace required. You know what I'm talking about? It doesn't matter how much encouragement you might give them. It's never enough. And, and a lot of, some of these people are really injured. They have been run over by the world. They almost feel like their soul's been wrenched from their body. And we do need to extend them love. But you need to know something. If that's you that I just described, that is erroneous thinking. That's not sound judgment. You have a warped perception of reality, and it is making you and taking you a prisoner. What you need is a balanced, sensible, realistic view of who you are from, get this, God's perspective, not yours. You know, like the guy who's thinking or the gal who's high and mighty, it's, it's a self-centered perspective, isn't it? It's about them. But the net result for the person who's like, I'm terrible, I'm such a loser, I'm never going to go where can't do anything right, I'm ugly, I'm pain just to be around. The net result of that is also a self-centered perspective. It's kind of like uh, this. I, I haven't done a lot of bullying, but I, I've gone a time or two, and uh, I, I've learned something about bullying. You know, the, the object is to take the bowling ball and knock down all the pins. And it's pretty cool when you do that, right? And you've seen it on TV, and... Uh, you know, some of those guys, and they got these, like really weird, wicked spins that they put on that, and the ball, and they knock all the pins down and stuff like that. Here's something I've learned about bowling. Um, do you know that if you are doing the bowling deal and you try to put that little spin on thing, you know, like that, and the ball goes into the left gutter, do you know what that's called? You guys don't. Do you guys ever get out? You don't even know what that's called? It's called a gutter ball. Whoa, we're going to take a field trip. I'm going to take you all the lanes. You're going to eat really bad food, and you're going to have a good time. If the ball goes in the left gutter, it is called a gutter ball. Zero pins are knocked down. No points. Did you know that? Oh, then, well, let's say you're like, well, that, that spin didn't work, so I'm going to put one of these kind of spins on there, right? And you try one of those numbers on it, and, and if the ball goes into the right gutter, do you know what that's called? Oh, yeah, you guys are so smart. If we could just get you out. It is a gutter ball. Do you know how many points you get for that? How many pins knocked down? Zero. We got, hey, were you on the pro bowling tour? Are you, okay, you got it. Yes. No points. Friends, God wants us to see ourselves for who we really are. If you got a too low view of yourself, it's like going in the, in the left gutter. You got too high view of yourself, it's going in the right gutter. It's not hitting the strike where God wants you to see yourself 
for who you really are. A healthy view of self requires that you have an accurate understanding of how you're wired, such as your personality, your strengths, your weaknesses, your gifts, your personality, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. And if you're like, not sure, I can, we can answer that question really easily. When you're around a lot of people and there's lots of socialization going around and you're involved in that, does that charge you up or does it wipe you out and you're looking for the next place to hide? If it charges you up, you're likely an extrovert. And if you're like, <laughs> help me get out, I'm going to hang out in the car or something like that, you're probably an introvert. And it's fine to be either one. God's designed you that way, okay? The introverts have a way of thinking like, if I was just like the extrovert, I would really be like Jesus. And it's interesting. Extroverts think that if I was really like the introvert, contemplative, deep, not running off the mouth and getting in trouble all the time, I would be much more like Jesus when in actuality, Jesus seemed to demonstrate the fullness of all humanity perfectly and demonstrated both of those. You got to figure out uh, your tendencies, And what you need is honest reflection. And this is where like a mentor, a disciple is so very helpful. They could help you to see and give you honest feedback where you can ask questions. But if you're going to have a healthy view of yourself, you have to understand how you're wired. You're not always like comparing yourself, creating envy and like, oh, not that. That's not overly helpful. But to have an accurate view of who you are. And the second thing, if you're going to have a healthy view of self, is you have to have a humble appreciation for who you are. You have to stop resenting yourself. You have to stop comparing or pretending to be someone else. And doesn't that just seem like life? We don't really know who we are, so you know what we do? We try on other people. We see someone like, oh, wow, that girl, she's really cool. That guy's got it together. That's what success would look like. And so we try to act like them, right? And we do this, and I mean, we're talking, we got 40-plus-year-old folks that are just like trying on all these different people, and it never fits. You know why? Because it's not you. God wants you to appreciate with humility who you are. You know what's essential for it to be well with your soul? you got to have a healthy view of self. But let me tell you how this is possible. And what's so critically important. It's, it's what we haven't covered in verse 3. You have to have a maturing faith in Christ. You see what he said? You are to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. You see, having a healthy view of self is really possible because we have a real relationship with Christ. And you see that where he says God has allotted, he's given to each a measure of faith. God has given everyone who believes in Christ an allotment of faith, of belief. And it's our identity and our trust and faith in Christ that makes all the difference. And so if you want to experience the positive reality of a well-lived life, you've got to come to terms with the fact that you're believing in Christ and he now shapes your identity. And this is so very important because if you do not do this, if you don't find your identity in Jesus Christ, you live in defeat and frustration. It's all going to be about your accomplishments, what you can earn, gain, things you can do, and it is like a very difficult existence. And let me tell you, as Christians, this gets started really early. So what happens is someone comes and places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we're elated, and so what we do is like, well, 
you will, we need to have you like have quiet times, read the Bible, okay? And then you need to be in church. And we start, we start telling them all these things to do. And you know what? They're super important. Absolutely. You need to know these things. But this is what we forget. We never help people understand their new identity in Christ. The fact that he loves us unconditionally and he actually lives in us. And so what happens is we, they never really learn what it means to be in Christ. They get pieces of it here and there, but they think it's more like I've got to do all these things. It's almost like a works-based spirituality. What it really is is that you've been united with Christ and you have a brand new identity and we need to have this shaping in your life so you see yourself for who you are. And so let me give you some key verses on understanding your identity in Christ. Galatians 2.20 is a verse you hear a lot around here. Why? Because I find that most Christians do not understand this reality. When he says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. And he says, and now this life that I live in the flesh, I live to God. I live for his glory because he loved me and he gave himself up for me. Or like when Paul is praying in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, he's praying that you'll be strengthened with power through the inner man. And then in verse 17, he says this, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. It's our belief, our continual going back to Christ. He's dwelling. That's where we get our sense of well-being. It's not in how well or how poorly we've done. It's not what we've accomplished, who's recognizing us, who likes us, who's talking good about us, or who's talking bad about us. Our identity is absolutely secure because we're loved by Christ, and he has secured us forever with him. We're like in Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul is writing, hey, this is the mystery that has been hidden from past ages and generations, but it's been revealed even to the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. Most people never get it. In fact, it seems to still be a mystery today, though it's in our Bibles. God wants us to understand and relate all of life to Christ. That means you're going to work or to school tomorrow differently. You go with a recognition that he's with me. He loves me. It's not about my performance. It's about the fact that I am unconditionally loved by God, and it is so very freeing. In fact, you're fine that you're going to probably be a better student and a better worker. You're going to be better at home. Why? Because even in your failures, you know that you're unconditionally loved. And that doesn't like lead to like, well, good, man, I'll just do whatever I want, sin or not, I don't care. Actually, if you really understand unconditional love of God, divine love, you are drawn to him and to his ways. It's just like, man, I want to be pleasing to you because you are so good and so gracious to me. You know, God who has started the good work in you, Philippians 1.6, he is absolutely committed to bring it to completion. You know, it's, we want strength, wisdom, peace, perspective, hope. You know where you find those things? You find them in Christ. You find them by looking to him. It's why Paul says in Colossians 3, set your mind on things above, because if you don't, it's like a chicken existence and you're going to be taking your life and driving for worms and bugs when God intends you to soar. It's so critical that we learn to see ourselves as who we really are. We find our self-worth 
not what people are saying about us, not even what we think about ourselves so much, is about what God has said to be true about us. And what you need to do is develop patterns in your life where you're continually being reinforced with what God says to be true about you, to, in some respects, undo years of erroneous thinking. And on this idea of being unworthy and inadequate, and let's get started really young. It gets started like you're a little baby and your first influencers, you start hearing messages about your self-concept and your perceptions of who you really are, and you primarily get them from your parents and your family. And you begin to internalize these things. It, it happens in the environment in which you live. And you kind of start like, I'm, I'm good or I'm bad by kind of what you're seeing at home and, and you're getting these messages. But as you continue to grow, by the time you get a little older, by grade school or adolescence, then peers and culture start reinforcing this message. It's all about performance and appearance, especially for women. And so what happens is they are deeply ingrained that it's about performance and appearance. And they're going to find anybody or anything that is going to affirm them in this pursuit. And what happens is they continue, adults actually identify like an ideal self. This is what I should really look like, okay? It is absolutely impossible. And they keep comparing themselves to this, this idol-type image that they put up there. They never meet it. It leads to great amounts of consternation, soul-wrenching, and it's difficult. It's a painful existence. So it depends a lot, really, on kind of how you get started. If you come from an abusive environment or one that's just overly critical, then what happens is your perception is that, well, you're the cause of all these problems. And you expect to actually feel like you need to be punished all the time. You will do things. You'll break societal rules. You'll even become self-injurious. You'll engage in behavior that we would call risky behavior. What, what happens is you'll either try to bury your pain so deep that you hope that no one ever discovers, or you'll try to somehow numb it. And so the typical ones, alcohol, a lot of reason people are drinking in excess, they're trying to deal with the pain. Drugs, why do they take it? The pain is so deep. If I could just get a little bit of relief. This, this whole cutting thing is a big deal in our society. You know why I got all these kids cutting themselves? It's like, it's like I feel pain here. It makes me know that I'm alive. It, it somehow numbs the fact that I've got such deep hurt in my own life. And so if you grew up in a home that's abusive or critical, overly critical like that, you're going to find symptoms of depression, anxiety, anger, fearfulness, sadness, broken relationships. It's your environment. You've been conditioned to think that way, and that's the end result. On the other hand, if you come from a home where you... You can do no wrong, right? Your mom is a little princess. You're, man, you're, you're the wonder child, right? You could never do anything wrong. And the parents, they, they treat you like that. And, you know, if you're a parent and you're doing that, and you're thinking, well, I really am loving my kid unconditionally. That's why, that's why I'm doing this, right? You are setting them up for a really harsh reality. Because what happens is they get to school and... Not everybody thinks that they're as wonderful as they've been told all their life. And it's, it's painful, and they'll, they'll do things. They're flat-out upset. Why are the teachers not listening to what I'm saying? And they're going to do things to exert their control because it worked at home, and the teachers meet with the parents, and this is what happens. The coach or the teacher meets with the parent, 
And the parent actually, instead of going, you're right, we have got to address this issue. No, they rescue the child and they go and tear up the teacher. Why? Because they believe their child can do no wrong. If you think like, are you serious, Grant? That's happening? Go ask a teacher. It's, it's rampant. We got kids that are believing these things. And the, let me give you a biblical perspective on this. A biblical perspective is that you, you help your child because you yourself understand that we are made in God's image and that we are fallen and sinful. Okay? That explains a lot of their behavior. But we also are unconditionally loved because we've been redeemed by Christ. And so what happens is that a child begins to understand that they have a sense of being loved unconditionally, even with them being imperfect. That's how God loves us. Of course we're imperfect, right? We're walking illustrations of problems and not not living like we should, and yet God loves us unconditionally. And that's an environment in which children can thrive. But if you are basically shaping your kid to think it's all about performance or appearance, you're having culture, society, and society dictate to them what life is really like instead of truth. Now, I'll tell you what, if your kids or you are believing a lie, oftentimes this leads to disaster. I was reading Dr. David Clark writes three dangerous lies that many teen girls believe. One is that I need to look or be a certain way to be loved. Okay, and so what they, these teenage girls, they, they find out what the media says is beauty. And then to make it worse, you got all these adolescent teenage boys that are tripping over themselves to try to pinpoint like, that's, that's beauty, that's, that's good, that fits the description. And so they try to come as close as possible to these images and it's, it's painfully impossible. Furthermore, I mean, it gets started. All the little princess stories that they've heard growing up, it's always the beautiful princess, Right? And so they actually think, that's, that's what I need. If I'm going to be loved, my life is going to be a fairy tale, then I need what? I need to be like that. Of course, they can't. Start, it literally starts tearing them up from the inside. She becomes no longer satisfied with who she is. She's going to cut weight. She's going to starve herself. She'll do all sorts of things to try to fit into this mold and get this image. But then the second lie he writes that many teen girls believe is that my self-worth depends upon the approval and attention of others. And so she starts looking for approval from parents and teachers and coaches, but mainly from her peers and especially boys. I want them to like me. And she'll break through core beliefs, values. She'll do things with her mouth, her thoughts, her body, that she knows to be wrong, and yet she so desperately wants the approval and attention of others. And now we've got ourselves a cauldron of despair because that third dangerous lie he highlights is this, the belief that I am ruined. And what happens is she begins to think that I'm damaged goods. There is no hope for me, there's no recovery, and there is no wholeness. And especially if you have a moral failure, they become overwhelmed with feelings of hopelessness and they try to bury this down deep or they try to anesthetize their pain. And this explains a lot of what's going on in teenage America. You know, by the time we get to adults, man, we've, this is so deeply ingrained in us. It is, it's like we're hardwired to think this way. And it will take years to have truth 
having to reinforce what it really means to have self-worth and value in Christ's eyes over the lives of Satan that you believed for so many years. Make matters worse, if you grew up and people were really critical of you, you actually have a propensity to actually marry someone that will be critical of you. Why would you do that? You would think you'd want to escape the pain, but you find that it's familiar, and so you tie yourself in, and it's a long, hard, difficult road. You know what we need, don't you? We need salvation. We need the gospel. We need God to rescue us from this mess of ourselves, in ourselves. That's why Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To believe that God can literally transform us, make us new, cleanse us, to make us whiter than snow, to release us from our sins, to literally fashion us into the image of God as he's intended. And so what will it be for you? Is it going to be about performance, position, titles, achievements, and power? Are you really going to conform your thinking to the world? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Or will you believe Christ? This verse says that God has allotted to each a measure of faith. It is your faith in Christ. You keep looking to Jesus. You keep taking his truth because that will release you. And you're going to go from a chicken existence, eating bugs and worms, to one that can soar and fly, to be everything that God intended you to be. You are worthy in Christ because of your faith in him. It's not about how good or even how bad you are. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him. And this literally releases us to live life when you believe it. Change is possible. It's kind of like Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he thinks within himself, so he is. You basically live in your thoughts. So what are you thinking? What really are you thinking about yourself? You know, change is possible. Let's, let's take one. Appearance. What you physically look like. If I were to ask you, how many of you would, went through as you're growing up, would have loved to change some things about you? Although none of you are putting your hands up now, all of us are like, oh my goodness, I can't tell you how much time I spent in front of the mirror, wish I could change this or that, right? And you tore yourself up, you shredded yourself. You tried all sorts of crazy stuff because why? You resented yourself. But when you see yourself as fully loved by Christ, you take God at his word. That's what faith is. Faith is taking God at his word. You come to like Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. It says, For you, God, you formed me, my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. You come to a place like realizing, you know what? I look like God intended me to look. You get past like, well, I really wish I looked like her or him to like, hey, God must have a reason for me to be this way. And you know what? My soul knows that he's made me and shaped me. And it can be well with my soul. Or let me give you another one. Our sense of security. When you see your identity is wrapped up in Christ and that he loves you and he cares for you, all of a sudden, your idea of of a sense of well-being and even safety, whether on earth or in heaven, your future outlook, instead of being paranoid by fear and paralyzed by it, you're actually released to live because you're believing in Christ. Your sense of being complete and competent, they, they, all, they all come from the Spirit of God using His truth. And what will happen, friends, is just like Jesus said, the truth, it'll set you free. So what do you want? Seriously? You want to be running around in someone's barn, pecking at the ground and eating worms and bugs? Or do you want to soar? 
This verse tells you how that's done. Sound judgment about who you are, believing, having the faith allotted each to us this measure of faith. And I'll tell you, change is good. When you believe what God has to say, but you really allow your heart to bloom like a flower that's starting to flourish, you have a sense of peace and well-being. It takes the pressure off. You develop a sense of security. You're not afraid of what people think about you or even if they're saying bad things about you because it doesn't really matter so much anymore. Why? Because all that matters is what Christ says about me in his word. And you really start to live. You can actually start to enjoy people. You could even start to enjoy yourself. Wow. Why? Because God intends for his people to know the fullness of his joy. If you do not know who you are, if you haven't come to terms with your own identity, you cannot be yourself because you actually do not know who you are. This is where a mentor, a discipler comes in. So very helpful. Helping you to understand, to shape, to confront wrong thinking, to show you who you really are in Christ. And you know, when it's well with your soul, you know what? You can live graciously in the world. Uh, several years ago, I had a, a great privilege. I got to spend a week with Chuck Swindoll. You've, you've seen him. Perhaps you've heard him on the radio. Uh, he's written a lot of books. Can't go into a Christian bookstore without seeing like a whole uh, row of Chuck Swindoll stuff. It was a, it was a great experience. The first night, um, I was with some other ministry leaders and we were all having this really nice dinner and he was going to give some remarks. Uh, He's going to talk a little bit after dinner. And I I happened to be sitting right like by the podium and I'd never seen him before and lo and behold, he actually exists. You know what I'm saying? And here he comes. He gets up there and like, look at him. There he is. And I can really see him really close. I'm right here, you know? And I'm on my best behavior at all and I was like, this is going to be great. And he goes, you know, I I just wanted to tell you just a a few things that really changed everything for me. Uh, he talked a little bit about a lot of the difficulties that he had and, and things, life and ministry, although he's, we would deem him a real success, uh, he really had lots of failures and, and things oftentimes, especially early on, were not well. He says, I want to tell you what changed everything for me. He said, the first thing is, is that you have to know who you are. You've got to know how God's wired you, your strengths, your weaknesses, You've got you to understand how God's wired you to know your personality, your gifts. And, you know, as he's talking, like, I'm close enough, I can actually see there's tears in this guy's eyes. It's like this, this changed everything for me, to know who I am. He said the second thing, not only do you have to know who you are, you have to actually like who you are. Maybe in later years come to say the word accept, but to come to a place where you stop resenting yourself, to understand that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. To actually like how God's made you in Christ. And he said, man, that was, that was life-changing for me. But the third, whew, not only do you have to know who you are, not only do you have to like who you are, you have to just be who you are. Stop trying to be someone else. He said, for many years, he said, I didn't actually discover this until like middle age, but for many years, I lived with a great amounts of frustration, always trying to be someone else. And so he said, you know what? I decided I'm done with that. So I'm gonna, he decided I will preach a message like maybe I would like to hear. And so he did. He knew that this was not how you were trained in seminary. But you know what? I'm fine with who I am in Christ. And he did. It went over so well, he kept doing it. Then he decided, you know what? I'll write a book. He knew that he would write a book that his, a lot of people would not think, like, this is, this is trash. This is not scholarly. But he said, I want to write a book like maybe I'd like to read. 
And so he did. And he became one of the most prolific Christian and successful Christian authors of all time. And so, friends, I give this to you. We were made to soar, to live, not just pecking it down here at the earth, meant to soar in the freedom of our identity in Christ. And when it is well with our soul, we can live graciously in the world. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. God, help us to take it at full value. Work the work of the Spirit. And Lord, for someone who has come here today who's never trusted in Christ, right now would they just turn from self and sin and ask Jesus to be Savior and Lord, to forgive them and to know the joy of having Christ as the Lord of their lives. And Lord, for all of us, may Romans 12, 1 through 3 be our ongoing living reality. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.